Google Time Management, and you will get millions of hits. Blogs, books, life hacks, and apps. Endless advice on how to plan, schedule, prioritize, create to-do lists, set goals, articulate personal mission statements, be more productive, experience less stress, and much more. But back in the 19th century, Ellen White taught some profound principles of Christian time management. What did she say? Welcome to the Ellen White Podcast. Here is your host, Dr. Judd Lake. Let's begin with the biblical view of time. In the beginning, God created time. Days, weeks, months, years. It was his gift to human beings, a framework and rhythm in which they could grow and flourish. The most basic unit of time was the day that grew into an endless succession of perfect days, grouped into meaningful units, especially the week with its culmination in the Sabbath, the most important day. Adam and Eve were given the gift of time and called to be stewards of their days in a perfect world. After the fall, however, everything changed. Sin ravaged the earth. Those good days turned into bad days. Death became a part of life, and the lifespan of human beings diminished significantly. But the gift of time remained, and God promised that as long as the earth continued, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Genesis 8.22 Reflecting deeply on how sin has affected our time, Moses produced a remarkable poem that calls us to think deeply about our days in a fallen world. In Psalms 90.12, he said, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. To number our days involves more than a chronological reckoning of our earthly sojourn. This significant verse implies stewardship of the days that the Lord gives us, a careful evaluation of how to live in those days. In this context, God alone is eternal, verses 1 and 2. But our days are limited, lasting only a short time on this earth, 70, maybe 80 years, then we disappear, verse 10. We are all under the judgment of sin and death with a quantitative limitation to our lives, as described in verses 3 through 12. This calls, therefore, for a qualitative consideration on how to steward our days, to reflect on them, ponder them, pray about them, and make the most of them, verses 12 through 17. Although our days are numbered or limited, we can still render our works to God and pray that the favor of the Lord our God will be upon us and establish us in the work of our hands. Verse 17. Thus, day by day, we are summoned to exercise wisdom on how to manage the gift of time. So from Psalm 90, we find both a quantitative view of time, our days are limited and numbered, and a qualitative view of time. We need wisdom on how to make the most of the events in our days. Throughout the Old Testament, these two dynamics of time are held in tension. Classical Greek literature employed two words for time. Chronos, where we get our word chronology, meant time as measurement and duration, the quantitative character of time. The other word, kairos, 
meant time as significance and opportunity, the qualitative character of time. Although they each had a distinctive focus, each of these words sometimes overlapped in meaning. Both are used in the Greek New Testament with the same etymological character and sometimes overlapping of meaning as in classical Greek, but the biblical writers give them a new theological significance, especially kairos. According to Jesus and the New Testament writers, for example, the period in which we are now living is a time of special opportunity in the presence of the spiritual kingdom. As Jesus said in Mark 1.15, the time, or kairos, is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So since Christ has come, he established that spiritual kingdom. He established this special time, this special kairos where the focus is on opportunity, spiritual opportunity. We're in that period between the two comings of Christ, or two advents of Christ, His first coming and His second coming. This is a period where spiritual blessings are being poured out. We already have access to those blessings spiritually, but the physical reality of the kingdom is not yet here. So in this time of Kairos, it's an opportunity to access the power in the Spirit. Paul calls us to make the best use of the time, or kairos, because the days are evil, Ephesians 5.16. So kairos takes on a specially powerful meaning, a spiritually charged meaning in the New Testament. Thus, the Christian life is lived in the biblical tension between these two aspects of time, quantity time and quality time. In terms of daily life, it is when these two aspects of time are separated that we run into problems. On the one hand, an overly chronos focus or clock-driven way of life can lead to stress when hours and minutes determine our meaning. On the other hand, an overly kairos-focused or event-driven way of life can lead to stress when we are late for appointments and generally unaware of the passing of time. Even in terms of different cultures, time-oriented people— such as we in the West, struggle to understand event-oriented people in the East, for example, and vice versa. The key is to maintain a balance of both time orientations in daily life. Nevertheless, as Robert Banks perceptively noted, we are so preoccupied with measuring time down to the smallest unit that we forget that generally it is the content that should determine how long we should engage in something, not the other way around. This is the biblical focus that Christians want to maintain in their use of time. Good Christian time management practice will thus keep both the quantitative and qualitative aspects of time in their proper places to rightly number each day. Now let's go to Ellen White and time. She reflects both aspects of biblical time in her understanding. Her most significant statement on time is found in Christ's Object Lessons, where she discusses the talents of Matthew 25, 14-30. There she describes the talent of time, first in terms of its theological, qualitative aspect. Our time belongs to God, she wrote. Every moment is His and we are under the most solemn obligation to improve it to His glory. Of no talent He has given will He require a more strict account than of our time. So as you can see here, 
she is taking a qualitative focus on time. As such, every moment is precious and, as she said, freighted with eternal consequences. These moments should be treasured and used wisely, while, as she said, time squandered can never be recovered. We can redeem the time by making the most of that which remains. So by emphasizing the moments, and our time is precious, that's clearly a kairos focus or quality-oriented view of time. And this is certainly important in daily life. We need to value the moments. That is her focus. Next, she describes time in terms of its quantitative aspect. She wrote, It is the duty of every Christian to acquire habits of order, thoroughness, and dispatch. There is no excuse for slow bungling at work of any character. Thus, a person must work to overcome fussy, lingering habits, as she put it, which slow their work down. All should have a definite aim. Decide how long a time is required for a given task and then bend every effort toward accomplishing the work in the given time. The exercise of the willpower will make the hands move deftly. So very clearly here, she has a quantitative or chronos focus on time, the economy of time. Then she writes, thus a resolute purpose, persistent industry, and careful economy of time will enable men to acquire knowledge and mental discipline which will qualify them for almost any position of influence and usefulness. So it's very interesting that she's reflecting really the modern perspective on time management of efficiency and effectiveness. Efficiency is the more chronos, quantitative focus. Effectiveness is the kairos, qualitative focus. In this passage in Christ Object Lessons, pages 342 and 343, she talks of each aspect of time and brings them together. It is interesting that she uses this term, a resolute purpose. In contemporary time management literature, there's a lot that is devoted to the concept of a personal mission statement, or a, as it's called, a personal purpose statement, where you set forth what your purpose in life is, what your mission in life is. That would certainly be a resolute purpose that's going to guide one in your use of time. So it's interesting how Ellen White is reflecting concepts that would come to full maturity in the 20th and 21st century in the vast time management literature. Now I'm going to move to a very interesting statement Ella White made about the to-do list. In time management literature today, the to-do list is very important. I have read entire books on putting together a daily to-do list. I like to call it the action list. Years ago, I, in my first doctoral degree, I wrote my dissertation on time management in the ministry, and I had the privilege of studying under Dr. Charles R. Hobbs, who at the time was a very significant time management specialist, in my view, probably the best time management specialist of all time. And I learned a lot of 
a lot of the time management principles. In the years since then, I've taught time management to pastors and and kept up with the literature. And I, I, I have always been amazed how Ellen White and her her statements about time and its management connect with contemporary ideas about time management. That's something I will say more about in the future. In fact, Matthew, Lucio, and I are discussing the possibility of doing a online time management class so I can bring the material I've taught over the years to a more popular level, uh, a broader audience than just pastors. So anyway, that's something that's under discussion now. We'll see what happens with that. At any rate, here is what Ellen White said about the to-do list. This is in the Youth's Instructor, September 7, 1893. She's writing to young people about how to manage their lives and be organized in their lives. And in that little essay, she makes this statement, as far as possible, it is well to consider what is to be accomplished through the day. Make a memorandum of the different duties that await your attention and set apart a certain time for the doing of each duty. Let everything be done with thoroughness, neatness, and dispatch. In this one short sweeping statement, she captures the essence of good time management practice to this very day. When she says, make a memorandum of the different duties, that's a list, a list of things you want to accomplish for the day. Now, the term memorandum is interesting because it was a familiar term to her audience. Since the days of Benjamin Franklin, he was the first to create a, what we would call a, a datebook organizer, his Alamac. And Alamacs became very important in the 18th century, latter 18th century, where they would have a place to write down their financial transactions and keep a diary and, and a little calendar. And this became very popular. Americans really began to purchase these, these, these little Datebook organizers, as we call them today. And then when, by the time uh, you get to the mid-19th century, they were very popular. In fact, some of them were called memorandums. And so when Ellen White says, make a memorandum of the different duties, it's reflecting that environment of writing this down in your memorandum, in your little book, your list of things to do, as well as scheduling. Because there was calendars in those memorandums. So she says, make a memorandum of the different duties that await your attention. That's a to-do list for the day. And then set apart a certain time for the doing of each duty. There is the scheduling. Planning is deciding what you're going to do. Scheduling is deciding when you're going to do it. So she says, make a list of what you want to do for the day. And then decide when you're going to do it. Put things in your calendar. Schedule your appointments. Decide how long it's going to take you on this task. Interestingly, that is a concept today known as time blocking. I've written whole books about time blocking, where you block out your schedule, and you set apart a time to do your to-do list, and you set apart time for your appointments, for your meetings. Time blocking. There's even software that will help you do that today. So she is on the cutting edge of time management thought in her day and foreshadowing what it would become in our day. Planning, deciding what you're going to do, a memorandum of the different duties that await your attention, 
and deciding and scheduling, deciding when you're going to do it, set apart a certain time for the doing of each duty. And she finishes with, let everything be done with thoroughness, neatness, and dispatch. And that's pretty much what contemporary time management helps its constituents do. The time management industry today is quite, quite uh, broad in its scope. And that'll be another discussion because there's much more I could say about Ellen White and time management, and I'll save that for future podcasts. But I want to move on with one more interesting historical insight with Ellen White and time management. And that is Ellen White and the eight-hour movement. In 1896, she responded to this eight-hour movement. Now, what that is, is a movement that began during the Civil War era, in the mid-1860s, by the government. Then it became a social movement. And the idea was is to keep employers from overworking their employees, who would sometimes work 14, 15 hours a day. They would limit work to eight hours a day. This became known as the eight-hour movement. Ellen White did not like it. She referred to it as the eight-hour system. Here's what she wrote in 1896. She's reflecting questions people had asked her, and it got her to thinking about this, and she responded. The question has been asked me, are you, are you employed by the general conference? I am. How many hours do you give? Hours? God's servants keep no record of hours. We must be ready in season and out of season to speak to this young man and to that young woman, to write letters to those in peril, and to hold interviews requiring the most earnest, anxious labor, praying for and with the erring and the tempted. My practice is to rise at 3 a.m. and write 12 or 15 pages for the papers before my breakfast. Those who write, as well as talk, the truth, have double labor. The eight-hour system finds no place in the program of the minister of God. He must watch his chance to minister. He must be ready to entertain visitors. He must keep up life and energy of character, for he cannot exert a pleasing, saving influence if he is languid. If he occupies responsible positions, he must be prepared to attend board and council meetings, spending hours of wearisome brain and nerve-taxing labor while others are asleep in devising and planning with his co-labors. When do you find opportunity to throw off care and responsibility? I am asked, and I answer, at no period of time can I lay down the burden. Wow. Now that's pretty intense. It's like, Ellen, is there any time for rest and relaxation? I mean, are we to be doing the work of God all the time? Let's keep in mind the context here. She is responding strongly to the eight-hour movement or eight-hour system, as she called it. In her mind, especially for those who are in full-time ministry, you don't measure the time you work for God. You don't limit it to eight hours. It takes as long as it takes, and you do the work for God. For her, this could be an excuse for some slackers to not really engage in the work that they should be doing for the Lord. I find myself relating here where she talks about those who uh, write as well as talk the truth have double labor because I teach full-time as a professor 
But on top of that full-time teaching, I attempt to write and do research. So eight hours, that, uh, that doesn't work for me either. Still, though, there's got to be time for rest and relaxation for Christian leisure time. Ellen, are we to be working like this constantly all the time? This is where we have to apply a principle of interpretation to Ellen White and read her holistically. First of all, know the context. She's reacting strongly here to the eight-hour movement that she rejects. But also, we need to read her holistically and see balancing statements to these things. Because if you just take the statement alone, this means, man, you're to work 24-7 for God and never take a break. But if you read it holistically, she balances it out with other statements. In fact, years earlier, she wrote in Testimonies, Volume 1, page 514. Here is the balancing statement. She said, I was shown that Sabbath keepers, as a people, labor too hard without allowing themselves change or periods of rest. Recreation is needful to those who are engaged in physical labor and still more essential for those whose labor is principally mental. It is not, and here is a key statement, it is not essential to our salvation nor for the glory of God to keep the mind laboring constantly and excessively, even upon religious themes. Here we find a balance in Ellen White's thought holistically. Again, she was specifically referring to the eight-hour movement in that context. But holistically, she clearly understands that People who are engaged in ministry, as well as everyone else, has got to have a break. You can't be working constantly. In fact, in her own experience, I, f- I found it interesting as I was researching this that she talks about eight hours of sleep, where she was against the eight-hour movement, limiting your work to eight hours. She found that for her, when she got an eight-hour night of good sleep, she wrote what a blessing that was. She said it was so rare for her. One time she says, for the first time in a long time, I slept eight hours. She was writing a letter to her children. I slept eight hours. I've been so overworked. It was so wonderful to rest. So Ellen White, like her husband James, had a tendency to overwork. But if you look at their relationship, James clearly was a workaholic, and, and it caused some some strokes in his life, and it was Ellen who helped get him back to health, and she helped him learn to relax. She would tell him, go out in the woods and hunt and be like a boy again, relax and have fun. So when it comes to reality of day-to-day living, Ellen White recognized even she needs rest. Her husband needs rest. And the rest of God's people need rest. Now, she was against uh, leisure in terms of worldly worldly entertainment, those type of things. She's she's talking about Christian leisure, and she gives some examples of of how to, um, as a family, go out and and have fun and, and relax out in nature. It's interesting that on the next page, 
5.15 in Testimonies Volume 1, she's talking about workers who were in the office all the time and they needed a change of pace. They needed to get out of the office. She said they should have a change frequently. And listen to this. She said, they should often devote a day wholly to recreation with their families who were almost entirely deprived of their society. So here she's talking about workaholics that needed to take a day off to be with their families. Their families needed them as well. So here we find a balance in her approach to work and leisure. This is why we must read her holistically and principles of interpretation with Ellen White, how to read Ellen White correctly, how to read her holistically. This is something I will be discussing in a future podcast. So, Ellen White advocated time management principles and the framework of the biblical understanding of time and manifested a balance between work and leisure and foreshadowed some time management practices in our contemporary world. As I bring this to a close, let me recommend a book that I found most helpful when it comes to work and leisure. It's by one of my favorite authors, Leland Riken, English scholar, who's written a lot on the Bible as literature. Back in the 80s, he wrote this book, Redeeming the Time, A Christian Approach to Work and Leisure. Leland Riken, R-Y-K-E-N. If that's a topic that you want to explore further, you won't find a better book than this one. Thanks for listening today. Always remember, test a prophet by the prophets of the Bible. Until next time.